maybe 30 or 20 years ago, a Saudi might have said, I'm Muslim and I'm Arab and I'm Saudi. Now they might say, I'm Saudi and I'm Arab and I'm Muslim. You know, they're trying to radically refashion their country and they need help from the best experts in the world. Do you want to have your country's people be disqualified from that because of some essentially antiquated point of view about how countries work together? In recent months, it can feel like Saudi Arabia is intent on buying the world. It's bought up much of golf, sports teams, many of the globe's best soccer players to its own domestic league, and it owns huge chunks of many of the biggest companies on the planet. But Saudi Arabia is not just on a shopping spree. The once insular, oil-rich kingdom is transforming into a major diplomatic and military player, a pivotal actor in the energy transition, and looks set to host high-end cultural events like the FIFA World Cup. You know, they know that buying a football club immediately brings you a billboard into a global game that allows you to completely reposition yourself and rebrand yourself. It feels like we're entering the era of the Saudi project. But what exactly is the kingdom trying to achieve, and will it succeed? Coming soon from Intelligence Squared, the Saudi project is a new podcast series seeking to answer some of these questions and more. Britain does have choices. It's not either or situation. We either indulge Mohammed bin Salman or boycott Mohammed bin Salman. There is a third choice. Search The Saudi Project wherever you get your podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are the phenomena of trigger warning safe spaces and no platforming harming young minds? That's the theme of this week's Sunday debate as we're going back to 2019 when we were joined by Jonathan Haidt, author of The Coddling of the American Mind and a host of other speakers to discuss whether universities were abandoning their liberal values and free speech or whether these institutions of power, which were once run by and for white men, are simply being democratised to allow for minorities and women to have more of a say in what happens on campus. It's a really fascinating debate and we hope you enjoy it. Now let's go to the episode. And I have news for all of you before we begin that this is actually a safe space for an hour and a half. You will not hear any mention of Brexit and that is my promise to you for now. Um, A warm welcome to you all as we debate the battle for free speech, trigger warning, safe spaces, microaggressions and no platforming. We're going to start with Jonathan, our guest for the evening, as it were, and a warm welcome to you. Um, Take us through the problem that you're writing about. Your book is about the the coddling of American minds and the fears you have for campuses and for students. There are two related problems that have uh, have sort of flooded into the United States or become very visible in the last three or four years. They weren't really visible before then. Uh, So I'll just very briefly state them, and that I hope will set us up for a discussion. Uh, The first is that we have, um, I'd say, a a mental health crisis for boys and a mental health catastrophe for girls. What I mean by that is that rates of anxiety and depression were fairly stable uh, in the early, from 2000 to 2010, and then they begin rising very sharply um, for boys 
boys, rates of major depression are up about uh, 30%. For girls, they're up about 40%. Some people say this is just self-report, it's not real. Um, But rates of hospital admission for self-harm are up in the same way for girls, not for boys, though. Um, For suicide in the United States, suicide for teenage boys is up 25% from the first decade of the century, if you look at the rise to the last two or three years, 25% increase. For girls, it's 70%, 70% increase. I just looked at the numbers for the UK on my way over here. The Guardian has had a lot of really good coverage of the various studies that have come out. It's the exact same thing. You, too, have no rise at all in hospital admissions for boys. Boys are not cutting themselves more. But your girls are going to the hospital much more because they cut their bodies and are bleeding. Um, You also have, even though the suicide rate, I think it was in England and Wales, even though that suicide rate is going down to historic levels overall, the rate for teenage girls has reached its highest level ever. You also have about a 60 or 65% increase in, in completed suicides for English, uh, English girls, English and Welsh girls. So there's a mental health catastrophe going on. Uh, we don't really know what causes it, but the best, the, the, the most likely explanations are the combination of social media, which is much harder on girls than boys, and the vast, vast overprotection that we, in, in the United States, Um, we decided to stop letting our kids out, to tell them the world is dangerous, to tell them that if they're ever not watched by an adult, they will be abducted. We started telling them this in the 1980s, and especially in the 1990s, just as our crime rate was plummeting. We taught them that life is so dangerous that they shouldn't be allowed outside. We deprived them of free play. So we don't know for sure, but we have a mental health crisis. It begins with kids born in 1995, we call them Gen Z or Gen Z, you would say, or, the, or iGen for the Internet generation. So when this generation arrives on campus in the United States, that's around age 18, they come to the university. So in, 19, in 2013, they first, the first members of, of Gen Z, Gen Z, come to campus. And that's when all of these things start. None of us had heard of these terms practically. But by 2014, in a few schools, students were asking for protections from words, books, speakers, ideas. They were treating them as though they were dangerous. Of course, students can protest and have protested words, books, speakers, and ideas, but they never before said, if this is presented, if this person comes, I or someone will be traumatized, harmed, damaged. This was new. We call this in the book, uh, Greg Lukianoff and I call it um, safetyism, the, the worship of safety, the, the, uh, the, the view of the world as safe versus dangerous. Americans now, young Americans talk about emotional safety. We used to call it emotional discomfort. Socrates reveled in creating emotional discomfort on the way to learning. Um, many of us are, are reluctant to do that now because if I create emotional discomfort in my students, they might take that as that they're unsafe and there's a number to call, there's an email to call to report me, even from class, they can report me if they think I've made them unsafe. Sorry, Jonathan, just a comment. You have actually changed the way you teach because of your own worries. Yes, I used to be a provocative teacher. I do not provoke anymore. I just play it straight. I don't tell jokes. I don't show many videos. Because it's happened to you personally? Yeah. It happens to a lot of people. So we all share stories. When I started this in 2015, people thought that we were exaggerating, we're talking about a few anecdotes, because it was just starting then. Now it has spread so far that even though most students are fine, most students are not depressed, they want to learn, they want to be exposed, but if you have a class of 300 students, you now have to teach to the most sensitive student because any one of them can report you. 
you talk about anti-fragility. Yes. Now, I know that's a, a phrase that goes up um, back to, I think it's Nassim Taleb, isn't it? But you use this phrase, anti-fragility, to talk about um, an inability to have resilience. Yes, this is the most important concept in the book, and so I'll just, I can lay it out very quickly, and if we, if, we all, if we have this on the table, everything else will make more sense. So many things, this, you know, this glass is fragile, and if I drop it, it will break, and it won't be better, it will be broken. And so we give kids plastic cups because plastic is resilient, but if a kid drops a plastic cup, it doesn't get better. There are a few things that need to be dropped. There are a few things that have to be challenged in order to configure themselves. So the immune system is the best example. If you protect your kids from bacteria and peanuts, they will have more autoimmune diseases and more likely to have peanut allergies. So the immune system requires exposure to all sorts of things. Well, it turns out human beings are anti-fragile. Human beings require, we, we have to experience stress exclusion, teasing, insults. We have to experience these things in small doses as kids to set the social system that allows it to wire itself up so that we can face larger things by the time we're adults. And I'm going to pick up with Eleanor now. Um, <laughs> lucky you. You're, you're our representative. I'm the token snowflake. <laughs> you are, what do you prefer? iGen or Zen, Gen Z or you choose. Oh, you can call me a snowflake if you want. I reserve that for my closest well, friends. Um, let, let's talk about um, the things that Jonathan's just mentioned there. Stress, exclusion, insults, teasing. Do you feel that those are areas that you should try and protect young people from? Or did you actually agree with most of what he said? Well, I think that um, what Jonathan's questions... Um, Jonathan's questions um, attempt to essentially frame what is a political problem as a problem that be can be reduced to and solved on the level of like personal psychological robustness. And I think that movement is something that is inherently flawed because what we're facing now is a series of overlapping political crises that students on campuses across the country, across the world, are attempting to develop frameworks and epistemological tactics and organisational tactics in order to change that. And yes, sometimes those look uncomfortable to the kind of columnists who are triggered enough to write an article about how they don't have a platform in a national newspaper. However, um, I think we're in danger of um, calling the people pointing out the problem the problem. We're in danger of massively misdiagnosing the real existential threats to our freedom of speech, which do exist, but they don't look like the very overblown handful of cases of students on campus um, overusing tactics such as, you know, such as no platforming or uh, such as trigger warnings. They look like, you know, the mass surveillance that's going on in our society. They look like um, government collecting data on Muslim students through uh, prevent legislation. They look like the rise and rise of the far right who have explicitly mobilised around uh, things like shutting down free speech. They like to play victims and they like to uh, spin a narrative of martyrdom, but really... Um, as, the, uh, as Donald Trump has shown us, uh, they have very little interest in, uh, in the game that we think, they, uh, we think we're playing. They have no interest in civility, they have no interest in truth, and they have no interest in freedom of speech. And what we're in danger of doing here, and I use that word purposely, don't worry, um, is 
having exactly the kind of concept creep that you talk about in the book, right? From freedom of speech as um, freedom from prosecution and freedom from harm uh, when you voice your opinion to a kind of freedom from consequence. So what we're expected is that powerful uh, speakers, often uh, powerful right-wing men, are... um, expected to be invited along to very prestigious platforms to air their views and uh, not be challenged for it. And to me, that's not, uh, that's not free speech. It's, it's the exact opposite. It's using uh, free speech, uh, it's using the trappings of free speech to essentially um, protect people who are already powerful from being challenged. It's, a, it's essentially flaying alive one of the mo- most fundamental rights in our democracy and, you know, wearing its dead skin. So, Eleanor, I'm going to come in here because you, um, you're making... It, these are really important points, I think. Now, I wouldn't have gone straight for no platforming because I think that's probably exactly the area that you think people push this debate onto when it's, if you like, the pinnacle of it. But since you are doing that and you're talking about the far right, let's put some examples here. Mm-hmm. Um, the obvious one is Steve Bannon who was in Oxford talking at the Union, um, you would not want Steve Bannon anywhere near your university. Well, I think that, um, well, first of all, my university, um, uh, UCL, represent, um, has an inglorious history of um, things like uh, white supremacist conferences, eugenics, uh, that kind of thing. So the university in and of itself, isn't this kind of like sanctified repository of, uh, of knowledge that cannot be, uh, that is apolitical and cannot be questioned. They are cultural institutions. They live in our society. They are as flawed and as struggling and as in evolution as the rest of us, right? Um, but I think what we need to, uh, need to understand is that the university as a cultural institution also conveys a stamp of approval. And that is a stamp of approval that I don't want to see given to someone who has no interest in uh, protecting free speech and um, does pose, um, and the politics that he has espoused does pose an existential threat to, you know, me and people like me. I think what we need to remember here is that free speech is fundamentally important because words have an impact. Mm. And to say that like, we shouldn't consider the impact of those words in a limited number of cases, such as the, such as the you know, fascism, uh, I think is ludicrous and I think is an under-analysis of the importance of free speech. Let me bring in Lord Sachs. Um, bad luck, you're both called Jonathan, so you get Jonathan tonight and you get Lord Sachs, just to make it easier. Do a swap. Uh, You can swap at half time. Um, Lord doesn't get you anywhere in New York, I have to say. They'll say, how do you do, Mr. Lord? (laughs) But Eleanor Eleanor raises a really um, critical point there, which is when you look at the university, is it a a platform? Is it an open platform in which any idea can be shared or rejected or explored or whatever? Or is it a community that has its own identity? And you have to be careful as a university what signals you are sending out, who you welcome, and how seriously those words of people who might be undesirables are taken. To me, a university... I was the first member of my family 
to go to university. It was a huge culture shock. My dad, bless him, left school at the age of 14. And always, uh, we felt, his four boys, that we were getting the education he wished he'd had. Um, so, I mean, and, and, and I found something in the university. I, I, you know, I grew up as a Jewish pupil at a school called Christ College. So I knew I was, you know, a cognitive minority. But that didn't bother me because I've often argued that Judaism is a civilization all of whose canonical texts are anthologies of arguments. And I think that's all God actually does in the, in the Bible is argue with people. And the people he loves arguing with, people like Abraham, Moses, Jeremiah, and Job, these are the heroes of faith. There's no such thing. There's no Hebrew word for obedience. Now, just work that out. There's a religion with a lot of commandments, but no word for obedience. So Jews always develop this kind of intellectual anti-fragility because we are used to being a cognitive minority. Now, I didn't know what on earth was going to happen in the university. I found it very, very disorienting at first, meeting people of a kind that I'd never met before, public school kids, all sorts of attitudes that were very alien to me. But I found myself studying philosophy with one of the world's great philosophers, the late Sir Bernard Williams, And he was a very principled atheist, a lapsed Catholic. And I was a lot more pious than I am now. And, you know, and I wondered what's going to happen here. And the fact is that we had the most extraordinary conversation, but he never once made fun of my faith, never once ridiculed it, only challenged me to make a, a coherent argument, a lucid argument, and challenged me at every point. But the fact that a guy like that was willing to listen to somebody like me, gave me the courage, gave me the anti-fragility that I was able to do stuff that not all that many Orthodox rabbis had done before, which is take a Jewish voice into the public domain, through broadcasting, through the press, knowing that most people who will hear my message won't know where I'm coming from and will probably disagree, but saying... Society is a, a, a symphony score, a choral symphony scored for many voices. And that to me is the beauty of the university. And it, why it becomes so important when we are disaggregating our societies into non-communicating sects of the like-minded. Now, all the cries of pain that come from excluded, marginalized groups have to be heard. But they have to be heard by all of us. I'm, I'm in favor of free speech because only out of that conversation, that democratic conversation, do we arrive at a society where we can all feel we have a share, we are heard. So that for me is the importance of the university and why I'm so bothered the way the university has gone, the way of rest of society, whereas it ought to be a safe space in which we are willing to give a respectful hearing to views opposed to our own, knowing that our own views will be given a respectful hearing, despite the fact that many of those doing the hearing don't agree with the word I say. Now, out of that democratic conversation come real solutions and real listening to other people's pain. Otherwise, if you disaggregate society into little silos and little boxes of, of, of 
of Google filters and Facebook likes, then you get non-communicating groups who can only feel towards other groups fear and anxiety. And that's just bad for all of us. Kendo, why is... Why is Jonathan Sachs wrong on that? Why... (laughs) (laughs) Why is the way to immunise ourselves against this fragility, against safetyism, not just to hear everyone and allow the merits of what is being said to dictate who is listened to and who is important? Because this is this fantasy version of the university where it is an institution that's based on equality and reason and there's no power relations in this discussion. The actually irony of this conversation is that it is rooted in fragility, but it's the fragility of the white elite, and actually the white male elite in particular. As an alternative way we can look at this picture, where in 1965, in the UK and in the US, only 5% of the population went to university, rich white men. Now, what's happened over the last 50 years is it's been opened up. You've got women, you've got minorities, you've got uh, LGBTQ communities. And not ironically, not surprisingly, these are the groups who are saying that the universities are harmful, the universities we need protection from, these institutions, which not, not too long ago would have determined that I wasn't a human being, have the same curriculum and basis of knowledge that say that I am not a human being. These are the spaces into which we have put minorities, women, etc., etc. And then we are somehow surprised when people say we need a safe space. Or actually, maybe I need a trigger warning to learn about European enlightenment because it's basically telling me that I can't think, right? And it's the fragility of the elite who we've come into this space and now hear the actual voices of minorities, right? Of people saying, you need to work differently because this isn't going to run for us. And I'm supposed to feel sorry for you because you have to change how you, how you respond. I mean, that, that's, this is a deeply fragile argument, but on the other side. Just, uh, but I'm going to let um, Jonathan Haidt respond to that. Why do you think you need safe spaces to learn about this, though? That's the question. Why do you need to be protected from learning about what happened in history, what happened in literature, what happened in classics? Well, it's interesting. The mental health statistics are interesting because mental health, uh, you're more likely to be mentally ill more generally if you're a minority. Uh, that's, that applies in universities. Uh, the dropout rate for minorities is higher in universities. The more, less likely to get a good degree in universities. Why? Because actually the curriculum, the environment, everything about it is alienating to you, right? So when st- students are, so when, are after, if you feel offended and, and, and actually are, there is a, I don't I use the word violence, but I don't mean that in a, I, what I mean is learning in an institution. So for example, look around. This was what my university experience was. One black face and literally 800 white people, right? Learning only, learning only stuff written by white Europeans, right? In environments with dead white men hanging on the wall, right? That's an actual violent space to me. So if I say I need a different, a space where I can just have a bit of quiet, from the, from the hegemonic whiteness, that's all people are asking for. But, but is right? that any different um, to Jonathan Sachs, you know, going to Christchurch school as a Jew? I mean, isn't it how you deal with your minority um, vulnerability that then informs whether you become stronger or weaker from it? I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a kind of... 
on, on some level, I agree. That's what society is like. I have to learn how to deal with racism, right? But I got, that's not really a good argument for universities. And the other flip side to this is, I, the people, the elite in these universities who make all this noise about no platform, etc., will more than likely go into jobs where they won't see any diversity. This is, the university is the only time that some people will ever have a diverse experience. Mm. And maybe they should spend that time listening to the people they'll never talk to again, because it may be their only opportunity. Um, that needs addressing. Okay. So um, there's a, a phrase in the, in the Bible, maybe it's in Proverbs, iron sharpens iron. We get smarter from contesting. So if that's what we're trying to do, we have one set of norms, and that's going to favor, uh, favor a, a fairly broad conception of speech, free speech. Another thing that we might do in universities is help students grow. And I've looked at a lot of university mission statements, and they usually are about discovery and growth or learning. Now, if we do that... It's going to be a different mindset, but it's going to be a kind of a somewhat therapeutic mindset of what do students need and what do they need to grow. And here, I think, is where we might disagree on what the, right, what the best way is. But I want to bring back Hinde's point and Eleanor's point, because if everyone were learning in the same way, from the same starting point, maybe that would be true. Your mind is open, you receive everything. If you come in as 10% to a room full of 90%, then there is immediately that imbalance, which needs to be corrected. Aren't you talking about progress here? I'll let you argue. I, I just think that it's, I just think it's absolute nonsense, to be honest, that to imagine that women, the LGBT people, that minority people aren't already some of the most robust people out there, because to survive... <laughs> which is what we're talking about in when, when we're using this like, you know, psychological framework to survive, to thrive, to flourish in this deeply, uh, deeply oppressive society in many ways. You need to be robust. I would love it if what we were talking about when we were talking about safety culture is a set of tactics where I didn't need to think about sexism. I didn't need to worry about anti-Semitism for another day. Brilliant. I can just take these tools and put myself in a little bubble and, you know, so what if I get paid less at work and so what if I, you know, get assaulted on the night bus home? I'm so, That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is creating the spaces necessary for people who are already robust to encounter the things, to confront head-on the structures that day-to-day -day we don't have the mental time to address. Now, for me, that's not about shutting down debate. That, those are precisely the conditions it takes to confront honestly and with intellectual rigor the kind of structures on which our society is founded. Now, in the book, we talk about... Uh, being triggered in the right circumstances as um, in CBT as a, uh, as a necessary process for growth. I completely agree. Um, I've actually I've had a PTSD diagnosis myself. I've been through CBT. Cognitive behavioral therapy. Co cognitive behavioral therapy. But that's precisely what safe spaces are. They are structures where um, people, can, people, can, people can allow themselves to confront material and to bring new perspectives in to institutions that usually exclude them. Now, as a, an academic, I 
want to embrace that. I want to embrace what is a flourishing, a proliferation of viewpoints. And of course, the ways in which those viewpoints are brought in and addressed are not going to look the same as the ways in which we were used to in the past because the people and the perspectives are changing, right? That's one of the gifts of feminist epistemology, right? That there are all kinds of ways of inquiry and all kinds of ways of knowing things. And we should be embracing that. That's not anti-intellectual. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv let me just ask you that in terms of embracing um views you don't like would you say you would not want to hear a sexist voice on campus you would not want to hear a right-wing voice on campus or an extreme right-wing voice on campus or have you been to ucl i'm asking (laughs) you i'm just this this is this is to help us out in terms of because the problem is that you are deciding where those lines are set what is unpalatable to you i mean I, I think that's uh, it's completely misca- complete mischaracterization no, of what's going question. on. Going it's a on. question. Yeah, no, no. Like, I'm not saying you are mischaracterizing. I'm saying that this is a mischaracterization, right? It's very, it's very convenient mischaracterization if you want to paint this like tiny minority of the left as the real enemies of society and distract from everything else that's going on. But okay, cool. Um, what's happening here is to say that like when uh, what a safety, what a safe space is, is to say that. What we need to do when we're in this room is to be mindful of how our language and how our behaviours affect other people. And this is a space in which we can confront the structures that we move through every day in a considered, um, compassionate way. And what a trigger warning is, is not, I'm not going to read this book, but I need to take a breath, take a little pause, in order that I can read this book. And the hysteria around having a 30-second pause or, or needing to step out the room for a bit is, to me, the real, you know, that's the real hysteria here. Okay, so if, if it is just about um, the use of language, the use of kindness, of compassion, there is nothing for a chief rabbi to disagree with there, is there? Well, you know, I'm always willing to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you get to be chief. But I mean, you know, I just, I just want to frame, step back and put it in a slightly larger frame. One thing has bothered me. For the last 50 years, we have focused on two institutions, one favored by the left, one favored by the right, namely the state and the market. The state is about the creation and distribution of power, market about the creation and distribution of wealth. And... The right tends to find market-based solutions. The left tends to find state-based solutions. 
I don't let anything hang on that. But it seems to me that we have always historically had healthy societies when we had a third arena because the state and the market are both about competition. They're about what in the short term are zero-sum games. The more power I give away, the less I have. The more money I give away, the less I have. There has to be a third arena, which we sometimes call civil society, a key arena of which is the university, which is not about competition. It's about collaboration and cooperation. And we need to learn how to cooperate as well as how to compete. What I object to and what is very dangerous is if you turn the university into a version of the market, i.e., you get privilege according to how you can pay, or you turn it into a version of the state where what's really at stake is relationships of power. And, Kiendi, you've said that universities are to be understood as relationships of power, and that, to me, is, is an, an allegation that needs to be taken terribly seriously. Are people using power to impose their views on others or silence views they don't want to hear? Universities have to stand aside as a third sector. We will learn to trust one another, listen to one another, respect one another's differences. Can, and I think we're losing that, and can, we can, can lose I ask it left-wit and right-wit. Yeah. Bear with me. Let me take your imagination for a walk. If you replace the word university with gentleman's club, right, which is what it may sound like, if you come from a minority that does not expect you in it, does that change? If instead of saying university, you say, in this gentleman's club, we have to you know, push back against the rule that doesn't allow women, we have to push <clears throat> back against the law that makes black men feel uncomfortable, does it then change? Look, it's, it's the sign of a guy who sold schmutters in commercial road, i.e., you know, Lower East Side sort of stuff. Uh, that's exactly what university looked like to me. I've wandered into this gentleman's club where clearly I don't belong. And it was a scary experience, I have to say this. And then I suddenly discover that all these very, very well-off and aristocratic and public school guys are willing to sit down and argue. And when we're talking seriously from the heart, with passion but with lucidity, all of a sudden those distinctions of class and, 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 and privilege just disappeared. And for a moment, that, that was for me an epiphany. That said to me, this isn't a gentleman's club. Here is a place where I, as a Jew, a cognitive minority representing less than one half of 1% of the population of this country, I have a voice here. I have a place here. And the same must apply to blacks, it must apply to LGBT, it must apply to any minority. They have to feel this is not a club that excludes me, and therefore I won't exclude the other voices in this club. Yeah, but the... Um, but the truth is that's not what happens. And the idea that the university is a third space, that's not true. The university has always been an expression of state power and market power, right? So the university justifies slavery at a time when you need slavery, for example. And going to this point about 2010, there's been a big change. What happened in 2008? 
there was a major financial crisis which unleashed neoliberalism in a way that had not been seen on the university sector. The university sector is just a market. Like, there is no barrier to that at all. And when you look at things like fees, if you look at the price of accommodation, if you look at competition, the market, that is probably the better explanation for why you're having these problems with students than because they're being mollycoddled. Actually, this, the, this university is the market, and the market is racism, and that market excludes people, many minorities. And that's really the problem we're talking about here. And what really is being said in safe spaces or no platforming or trigger warnings is you have a group of students now in this market, if you like, and they are saying we should be the ones who decide what speech, what, what is okay speech. Because I think we'd all agree that not, every, not all speech is okay. You wouldn't have Osama bin Laden coming to the university campus, right? But that's not just an objective decision. Well, maybe you would. I don't think most people would, right? But at some point, you're always going to have no platform. And there's always a level where you say, look, Holocaust denier, don't come to the university, right? But who is it that has the power to decide whether Steve Bannon should come? I would argue it's the students. You should not be the dons and the elite. And if the students get together and say, we don't want this person, then that's a perfectly fine expression of their free will, right? And it's right to speak. So, uh, <laughs> so I think we, we can all agree that universities, like most institutions, uh, used to be, like gentlemen's clubs, used to exclude women or, or people of African descent. Uh, I think we all agree that there used to be enormous racism. We can all agree that many groups we can talk about today as historically marginalized. I think we all agree to that. And our debate comes down to, have we made no progress, a little progress, or enormous progress? And if we've made enormous progress, should we continue? Or you might think we've made little, and therefore we need to try a totally new way. So I'd like to share with you what happened to me when I was on, uh, well, when I was on a panel at, uh, uh, soon after I wrote an article in The Atlantic with Greg Lukianoff in 2015, there was a panel organized um, at the New York University Law School uh, to talk about this, and uh, one, of the, the, uh, one of the participants was a, a law student uh, of, uh, of um, Latin American descent who was talking about being a, a Latino student at NYU Law, and she was talking about the, the constant violence uh, perpetrated on her, and I asked her to elaborate on that. What, what do you mean violence? Like actual, like physical violence? And she said, no, no, not physical violence, but, but violence nonetheless. And she said, well, I mean, you have to admit that this university was not built for, it was not designed for people like me. And I looked around the panel, and I said, okay, I'll agree to that. It wasn't built for people like me. I'm Jewish. It wasn't built for people like her. She's Chinese-American. It wasn't built for him. He's a gay, half-black um, uh, uh, British uh, uh, philosopher wasn't built for any of us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that progress? And to take the fact of historical prejudice as a reason to feel excluded today, as a reason to damn an institution that is trying its hardest to overcome that, to increase diversity, this is what we're talking about uh, with great untruth number two, the, what we call um, uh, the untruth of emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. If you're catastrophizing, if you're deliberately trying to, if you're deliberately telling students, this institution is against you, see oppression everywhere, people here hate you, they will do anything to stop you, that's a really good recipe to disempower them. If you want to make the black students at NYU Law fail, tell them that. Okay. Take that phrase. I don't mind which of your answers. Stop seeing oppression everywhere because that is ultimately what's holding back minorities. It's one of the things. There's others, but it's one. 
It might actually be oppressive. I don't okay, know. So I don't know. A couple things. Um, I think um, it is profoundly patronising, isn't it, to say that um, to respond to someone's cry of pain, as Rabbi Sachs uh, so uh, so uh, eloquently put, and uh, with your pain is not valid. Uh, your pain is, in fact, a cognitive distortion, is a misdiagnosis of the world. And I think when, when to, to say that, um, that um, university students reason purely from emotion is, is just untrue. That is the great untruth here. Um, but what we need to talk about here is that when um, uh, many mainstream philosophers at the moment centre uh, emotional... Uh, emotional factors like intuition, like uh, private pain, um, like distress, what that is, is a corrective to a long history of people who have experienced depression being told um, you're misdiagnosing your situation, you're lying, you're overestimating uh, what's happening to you. When really all of these um, are just historical tactics that have been used to uh, silence dissent and to get people to shut up, basically. Now, I'm not saying that that's what you're doing, but I am saying that that is very convenient for people who are trying to do that. And I'm, sa and I'm saying that, that those kinds of convenient narratives that we are inculcating in our universities invite, invite a kind of um, very damaging framework. And I'm not talking about damaging as in like discomforting. I'm talking about damaging to the fabric of exactly the kind of free, um, robust institution that we're all invested in. I'm going to come to questions in the audience. Um, right. Um, so, hi, I'm 18. And I guess in the eyes of a lot of people older than me, that makes me like a defend to the death free speech person. But I rec recently read Deborah Lipstadt's book, Denial, and I was really, I'd be really interested to hear what you think. It's um, about uh, Irvin, the Holocaust denier. Yeah, yeah, and the about Holocaust denial. Her. And I, I think just in general, in terms of historical truths, I'd be really interested to see at which point you would, as you say, draw the line yeah. in terms of free speech. Like at which point can you, you know, Deborah Lipstadt says, you know, there are, there are facts and there are lies. And at which point can you just get away with anything because of freedom of speech, right. especially in regards to Holocaust denial. Thank you very much indeed. Right, um, we can start with you, Rabbi. <laughs> Chief Rabbi. Now you're starting. Um, let's go backwards. Let's go backwards and then we'll pick up in that order. The important you... thing that happened with Deborah Lipstadt and, and denial is that uh, it wasn't Deborah who brought the case against... Irving, it was David Irving who yeah. brought the case against her. Um, I think Deborah believes, as we believe, that free speech gets us beyond prejudice and hatred because in the end there is such a thing as historical fact. So she never sought to deprive him of his freedom to speak. I think there are some European countries, uh, obviously Germany, but others likewise, who have such searing experiences, what went on during the Holocaust years, that they did enact laws um, banning Holocaust denial and so on. Um, and, and that's got to do with their own inner history. You know, they, they needed time 
to heal those wounds. Um, but Deborah never sought to, to do that. And if you really have confidence that you are right, then you never seek to silence your opponents. There's a very interesting argument, given that where we are today in, in, in the world and religions are turning inward and ethnic groups are turning inward and we're all a little more fearful of one another, it's just worth remembering the history of this free speech argument. Um, I think it was the 12th century Muslim thinker, Islamic thinker of Veros, who developed the first case that I know of of a religious defense of free speech, saying that if you're confident in your truth, then you welcome opponents who are as strong as they possibly can be because you know you're right. Um, and um, that is picked up in the 16th century by one of my ancestors, Rabbi Judah Lowy of Prague. It is then picked up in the 17th century by John Milton in Areopagitica, and it is then picked up in the 19th century by the secular thinker John Stuart Mill in his tract on liberty. So it seems to me that if you really have confidence in what you believe, you do not seek to limit speech because you believe that truth will win in the end. Uh, fabulous question. Uh, sadly, very relevant. Um, well, I think what you've hit on here is the fact that um, what um, is sold to us as um, a, a kind of, of sorry, what is sold to us as simply a neutral protection of free speech that raises up everyone maybe including some far-right people that we happen to disagree with, is not actually the case. Because what, um, what's happening is that people are making choices, right? When you give someone a platform, you offer them a choice. Now, I have no interest in depriving, in depriving anyone of their free speech. But I do have an interest in um, resisting the concept creep um, that means that we equate freedom of speech and a right to a, a national, powerful platform, because those two things are not the same. And I think um, when we um, institute, kind of, uh, I'm very suspicious of state-based solutions to um, things that should be worked out in the public and civic sphere, um, and these are precisely those discussions. But I think what we need to be doing here is examining why these choices are being made. And, for instance, Milo Yiannopoulos was given a, a lot of platforms and a very sweet book deal on the basis that he was this free speech crusader and that um, anyone who opposed him and opposed his, uh, his absolute God-given right to speak in front of thousands and thousands of people, um, which he could have done anyway via the internet, which is you know, another point. You can't possibly know platform anyone ultimately these days because of the technology. Um, you know, that seemed like a neutral choice. But as soon as he came out and said something that people genuinely disagreed with, which was when he um, said things in support of uh, paedophilic relations, he instantly had his platforms pulled, he had his book deal withdrawn, which indicates that people weren't neutrally supporting free speech. 
because they certainly weren't giving those kind of £250,000 book deals to kind of, you know, like crusty anarchos, like rummaging through the bins at the back of the publishing house as well. Um, they were giving it to people who, to whose uh, views were acceptable to their world picture. And it's those editorial choices that we need to be examining. And that examination is part of nourishing a free speech um, culture. Okay. I, I'm, I'm going to ask for some more hands. I'm going to let you, um, Jonathan, very uh, briefly, because okay. then I just want to get yeah. lots more voices okay. in. But okay. Uh, so I, I actually agree with a lot of what uh, Penny and her sister have written and said on free speech, that there is no absolute right to free speech. It doesn't mean you have a right to speak without consequences. On a college campus, I don't think everyone has a right to free speech if that means you can yell whatever you want or say obnoxious things. So I, I think we actually agree for the most part on the, there, there are and have to be limitations on speech in order to have the kind of community that we want to have. I also agree that a lot of political correctness is just being more polite, updating language so that it doesn't alienate people unnecessarily. So I think on free speech, we're actually not that far apart. The one thing that I would add is that what we need on campus especially, in addition to trying to give less offense, we also have to learn to take less offense. And the reason I say that is because we are trying so hard to increase diversity, and we are successful. The percentage of non-whites on all the top schools keeps going up and up and up, and we're all proud of that. If you're going to bring people together, especially internationally, if you have more people who have Asperger's or other mental, mental illnesses, you're going to have huge numbers of misunderstandings. You're going to have language used in all kinds of ways that could offend people. So yes, we need to give less offense, but we, it can't work unless we have a general regimen of give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, there's a lovely phrase in your book, um, which is about the principle, the principle of charity, of charity yes. which is when somebody says something that you find offensive, you have to work out whether it was intended to be or not. Well, just you give it its, more, its best read and not its worst. Okay, Hindi, I'm going to bring you in the next one. Let me just get some hands. Yes, that yeah. was you. Yeah. I, I thought it was ironic that Eleanor should mention fascism, where she was giving herself the unilateral right to decide who could and could not have free speech and was actually even justifying the use of violence. <laughs> Um, historically to stop people exercising their right to free speech. And of course it was Kahinde and her that tried to analyse society in terms of racial groups rather than as individuals. And it is, in fact you even evoked uh, Malcolm X who called white people devils. Okay. Um, so it's this kind of attempt to demonise white men as an exploiter class that is, gives you then the, the self-appointed right to decide who can and cannot have free speech. Got it. And this is in itself a form of fascism. Sure, thank you very much. Okay. So you're going to deal with demonizing white men. There's one more hand, this lady here. No, no, the lady who has the mic, yes. Oh, hi, hello. <laughs> thank um, you. Kahindi Andrews, I have a question for you. Um, very briefly, I, I'm Brazilian. Brazilian Portuguese, my boyfriend is British Caribbean, um, black. So we had a very heat, we have very heated discussions about these sort of things. Um, and in a nutshell, my question is, because I was talking to him about this yesterday, actually, um, he was explaining how, he was basically repeating a lot of the things that you say, how society is sort of built, obviously, against minorities. It's, it's, it's Britain. <laughs> like it's, it's built, all, we, we know the history. It's exclusionary. 
you cannot get into university these days if you do not have a lot of money. Um, my question is, because in a nutshell, what I argued with him was, I recognize what he says in terms of um, you know, white privilege, um, system being built against certain minorities, all of that, I agree. What my argument was, in order to find a solution, it would be more beneficiary, it would be, it would be more of a solution to, to seek economic uh, equality, because okay. money is the equalizer. Okay. So how do you think money, in, in making it accessible to everyone, would just sort of solve a lot of the problems that you raise. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. Um, well, you're so excited, I can tell, Anna. I'm going to let you just take on um, your, your demonizing of white men. Um, head on. It's one of my favorite things to do. Like, it makes for a great, apart from making for a great Saturday night, demonizing white men is not actually what we're doing here, okay? Um, we're talking about... Um, uh, being able to examine historical processes by which um, some people, by virtue of their position in terms of race composition, class composition, gender, move through the world in different ways. Now, that's not dividing people into good and bad. That's precisely the opposite. It's saying that we are all <coughs> imbricated in different ways in an incredibly complex political system. And frankly, that no one comes out with their hands clean. And that's okay, because that's a first movement to, under, to bridging understanding. You have to acknowledge and embrace difference and in, in order to try and so resolve the systems that produce that difference. Insofar as um, being a fascist is concerned... Um, that was weird. Um, <laughs> well, the, um, the point was that the point was who is making the choice. Well, Kiyinde was the one saying the students now and the minority students and the people who who have not always belonged in these institutions now get to make the rules. I mean, I, Do you get to make the rules? Um, me? I mean, I have other things to do, um, and I am a Democrat. I think that we should have a proliferation of more voices, more diverse voices, getting a say in who gets access to these platforms. And I think it's, it's not up to me. It's up to all of us to decide what that looks like. And not just all of us, quite frankly, because it's a very white audience and people pay 30 quid to be here. So we need an even more diverse set of people So it's just, just go back. So it's not, not up to everyone to decide. No, no, On it campus, it should it be up to minorities <laughs> to decide? Um, I, think, I think we need to, um, we need, we need to have a sense of, um, first of all, a, uh, a kind of democracy that assesses everyone as equals. And then bolt-on strategies that acknowledge the fact that if you are from a minority, um, you will have certain access to certain experiences, certain knowledges that are relevant when making these decisions, that, that if you are white um, or if you are a woman, say, you might not have immediate access to. And that's just the case of giving people the necessary knowledge they need to make that decision. Briefly. I mean, so firstly, Malcolm X actually stopped calling white people devils, but I keep getting reasons why we should just go back to it, right? And I think, I think that question may be one of them. And I'm, I am joking with it. But I, I really want to say, look, I mean, the idea that talking about racial groups is the problem is complete nonsense. Look at any statistic will tell you that this society is racist. 
I mean, just fundamentally racist. So to not talk about it is to collude in racism. And I'm going to go back to the sister's point to raised earlier, because this, uh, this, the way that we're viewed is really part of this and tells you one of the problems of university. So, for example, I went to university today in jeans and trainers. I never do this at university, because when I do this usually, even though I've been a member of staff for years, I get harassed by security. I have staff questioning me where I'm going in the building. So I'm actually anxious going into work dressed like this, how I usually dress, right? That's what it's like at university. And I go to Birmingham City, I work at Birmingham City, which is one of the most diverse universities in the, in the country. So imagine me as a black man at Cambridge or Oxford. That's the kind of violence we're talking about that says that we need to have safe spaces. That's the kind of racism we're talking about that says, actually, we need to have some kind of protection from this. So the idea that raising this issue as a black person is the problem is, frankly, one of the most racist and terrible things you could possibly say. That's the problem with this whole debate, really. I'm going to ask you to respond to the question that we had uh, at the beginning. Um, Do cheaper institutions find diversity easier or the opposite. I don't know if there's any work on that. And to go back, I think that one also came to you, Kahindi, to the lady with the Brazilian partner who said it all comes back to economics. P- presumably, that is a very simple yes, isn't it? Uh, not, no, 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 not on universities. <laughs> I'll shut up. No, no, really, not on universities, because there is this kind of idealization of what before there were fees. I went to university and there was, was very minimal fees. My sister went to university and it was free. And the problems were exactly the same. The, institu- the problem is the institution, and whether you pay for it or whether you don't pay for it, there's still those pressures, it's still got the curriculum, it's still got the staff, it's still got that history. So I don't think you should pay for university, but that's not, that sounds like a very easy, simple solution, but it actually wouldn't deal with the institutional problem. I can't see, so just choose me some good hands. <laughs> so I just want to play devil's advocate a little bit, and I want to ask... Creating safe spaces for like marginalized groups such as maybe colored people or LGBTQ or women, do you think that creating those safe spaces is actually allowing us to backtrack and actually pushing them away from creating diversity, actually right. isolating them and saying, you know, this is our own little comfortable bubble? Okay. Isn't that making us regress? Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Um... I'm half black and half white, and the lady in front of me, she was Brazilian, and she got a black boyfriend, and that girl's black over there, there's a Jewish man sitting over there. Like, what I'm trying to say is, I'm looking at this room, I don't really care that anyone's white, like, because there's a lot of, because you're saying, oh, I see a sea of 80% white people, and it's like that all the time. Wait, wait, ah. <laughs> so, you're, that's what you're seeing for, as, a, as a black man yourself, yeah? But I'm not seeing that, so I don't, and I don't like how you're, okay. and, and I don't like how you're putting you and me in the same category because all these white people are different in their okay. own rights and me and you are different and I don't, I don't make sense. Okay, um, number four, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, um, I've never let um, my colour or uh, my sex get in the way of the progress that I wanted to make. Uh, I've managed to break the glass ceiling just through hard work um, and I've never made any excuses for, you know, where I wanted to go. Um, I think that if you see no colour and you see no prejudice, then you get it reciprocated. Thank you very much. OK. Right. Um, it's fair to say that more of those questions came to you two. Kindy, you answer um, the guy up there who gave us the last question. 
Um, yeah, I, I just feel, I, I don't know, I guess maybe it's a really moving moment where we have all these wonderful exceptions to the rule that the society is actually built on serious issues of racial discrimination. Look, I mean, me and my, look, the idea that we're going to disagree because we're black, who, who said that? My point is that whether you like it or not, you are seen as a black man. And whether you like it or not, that is going to have an impact on your life. Like, you can live in a dreamland where you think it does not, but that's up to you, right? You stay there. Am I going to say it on a real level? Because one of the problems with this debate is, this idea that the route to equality is we sit down, reason it out, and we come to this wonderful new utopia. We have been on the right side of the argument for 500 years. It has gotten us nowhere. That is not how progress happens. It's simply not. That's not how progress happens. Progress happens through organization, when people come together, when people do things like, I don't know, protest a racist speaker at a university. That would be a good way to actually... But I'm going to bring in uh, the lady number two who said, by creating these safe spaces, whether it's LGBT or um, a mixed-race cell space or a black cell space or a female cell space, all you're doing is isolating yourself off into your own bubble. But what, one of the things you can find evidence for both in the UK and in America is when you have groups like African-Caribbean societies or you have African-American groups, those spaces actually, because the, because the university generally is so, is so problematic, having those spaces of safety and that space of where you can just do things differently, even if it's simple things like cultural things, are a huge part of building resilience. All the evidence will show you that if you're in these groups, you do better at university. So actually, I'd completely disagree. All the evidence tells us that having those, having those spaces helps to prepare you better and do better in the, in the, in the university and society. I, I, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring Jonathan in and to, to um, end with him. I'd like to address the broader question of the question we were here to address, which one of the questioners asked. Uh, so at the end of this 90 minutes together, what do you think? Do you think that, free, that uh, trigger warnings, no, uh, safe spaces and no platforming are harming young minds or helping them? You've heard uh, two people say that they're generally helpful, uh, and at least we're generally on the side that they are at least not helpful and possibly harmful. Um, we did a lot of, we talked to a lot of clinical psychologists about trigger warnings. You're absolutely right um, that they're very rare. They're not used often. Although the New York Times had an article yesterday, they're now in theaters. If you go into a play in America, you might now see a trigger warning. So they're spreading, they're likely to become common in the future, but you're right, they have not been common on campus yet. But it's an empirical question whether they help people who have PTSD. That is not a question that we can just guess that, oh, it would probably be helpful to them. That is an empirical question to be addressed by clinical psychologists who've done the research on it. We spoke to a lot of clinical psychologists who work on PTSD, and they, um, they all said the same thing. Exposure to the thing that you're afraid of in a graduated way where nothing bad is going to happen is the cure for it. Moving away from reminders is a symptom of PTSD. It is not a cure. There are also a few experiments that have tried experimentally to either give or not give. They suggest either no benefit or possibly some backfire. We don't know the answer yet. Good experiments are going to be done. It's an empirical question. So far, there is, very, there is no evidence to suggest that trigger warnings are helpful to people with PTSD. On the broader question of this whole package, trigger warning safe spaces, this approach to your university, this approach to the world of ideas and books and speakers, is this helpful to students or harmful? And I would submit, and I think we show the evidence in, in the book, that thinking this way makes you see more threats, makes you have more of an external locus of control because these vast forces are what determine your outcome. And my God, does it waste your four years when you could be learning and instead you're focused on defeating the enemy. I think I'll end it there. Right. <laughs> Quit while you're ahead. Um, on that note, we're going to thank all of our speakers. Thank you all very much indeed. Thank you.